Hi, I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host of One in 10. In today's episode, Multidisciplinary Teams, What's the Secret Sauce? I speak with Dr. James Herbert, Senior Research Fellow at the Australian Center for Child Protection, and that is the first CAC in Australia. Now, for those of us in the CAC movement or on multidisciplinary teams, we sometimes take our work together for granted. The teamwork, the support, oh, the conflicts, and the difficult decisions we make together to protect children. But imagine for a moment coming to that work completely fresh and as a research scientist, as James did, and truly trying to unpack what makes it work. Now we know that research has established that MDTs create better outcomes in child abuse cases. But what is that secret sauce that does make it work? How do teams make their decisions in these high stake cases? And what research is still needed to help us better leverage the combined knowledge and skills of the team? Most importantly, how does improving the understanding of the MDT model help us better serve abused children? I know you're going to be as interested as I was in James' take from halfway around the globe. Take a listen. Hi, James. Welcome to One in Ten. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm great. And I know it's bright and early where you are and it's evening where I am, but I'm looking forward to our conversation today. And how did you come to this work especially that work around looking at effective responses to child abuse. It kind of was a bit serendipitous in that I was really interested in evidence-based policy and that was sort of the thing I was pursuing as a research interest and, you know, I'd worked in corrections and a few other things and sort of got really interested in, you know, all right, we do this research. How does it sort of rumble around these, you know, big organisations and actually have an impact? And, yeah, I guess maybe I got a bit jaded and, and cynical based on the experience of working in corrections. Uh, so I I did some work looking at the impacts of evaluation after the fact. So really big scale evaluations. Um, and just by chance, they happen to all be uh, early intervention child protection programs. So when I sort of finished up and was applying for jobs, one of the jobs that came up was at the Australian Centre for Child Protection. Then it actually was really just down to that sort of what brought me into researching into multi-agency responses was the postdoc was specifically kind of embedded within the development of a new child advocacy centre in, in Perth, Western Australia, which is my hometown. I was living in Sydney at the time. So yeah, I kind of had the opportunity to, to move back to Perth, which was, which was really great, as well as yeah, be embedded in and I guess support this uh, new thing that was happening in Western Australia that were, you know, really excited about and it had taken a really long time to get all the different police and, and everyone else on board. But um, yeah, it was a really awesome experience of just uh, sort of being dropped in and, you know, not only doing the research and understanding what's going on broader in the field, but actually sitting within one and watching it sort of develop around me and and even seeing the, the way police and, and child protection and interviewers and things changed the way they interacted with each other as they became more familiar. It was, um, yeah, it was a really powerful experience and really reinforced, I guess, the meaningfulness of interagency collaboration when it's at that very personal level. Well, and interestingly enough, because you were watching them while researching them, it was a little bit, I don't know, sociological too, yeah. right? Watching, watching them while researching them sounds very ominous. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting. But, you know, one of the things that you had the benefit of 
which, you know, you'd have to go back in our history 35 years to find something similar is you were, even though I know that there had been multidisciplinary efforts in Australia for some time, this really was the first children's advocacy center model developed there. And so there weren't any sacred cows about how you went about that, really. You had the benefit of bringing fresh eyes to that. And I'm just wondering, as a researcher, you know, I know that the place you start is looking at the existing literature and sort of delving into it. What does it tell us is effective? What's there? Were you surprised that, well, there is a fair amount of research about children's advocacy centers and the various disciplines within them. There really wasn't much about what made multidisciplinary teams effective. This is a few things to unpack with that. So we sort of came in and had the advantage of, all right, we agree that a more holistic response is needed. What does that look like in the context of our local system? And, mm. you know, obviously child advocacy centre, you know, it's an approach um, and, you know, states and jurisdictions have the ability to sort of adapt it and tweak it for their own, own systems, you know, within the principles, of course. Mm. They were sort of able to start from a broader position of saying, what's going to make a difference? What's actually, well, one how do we work within the existing legislation and the mandates that particular, you know, government workers have? But also, yeah, how do we sort of like tighten this thing up and, and make it all work? And, yeah, it was really exciting sort of being around for them, having those conversations where, you know, anything was possible, but they were really motivated to, to try and give a better experience for children coming into the system and to, to link them into the services they need because that was the, that was the issue they really understood and I guess the, the, the point you were making about is starting from scratch, but also having some things sort of floating around is part of what was driving our research and at, at the very start was, all right, we've got this evidence base for children's advocacy centres. You know, primarily a lot of the studies are from the early 2000s. They sort of are reflecting a, a time in the US where you're comparing a sort of informal interagency response versus, you know, massive child advocacy centres like I think it was Dallas and, you know, Huntsville and mm -hmm. Philadelphia, like there's really, really developed centralised clusters of resources. So it was sort of different for us because we, we had um, sort of professionalised interviewers that were delivering an evidence-based protocol. We had, you know, a rough interagency system that was more or less about having an initial meeting about uh, case content. So... For our research, we had sort of had to start to think about and start to unpack, all right, if you are only implementing some of these things, what are the things you'd expect to see as a result of it? So that sort of prompted us to try and, and I guess, unpack multi-agency responses or, or CSEs as an intervention to say, hey, if you're only doing some of these things, if you already have some of these other things, what are the reasonable things or the reasonable outcomes that you'd be wanting to evaluate to see whether you're you're having the effect. I remember the first time I read some of your research about this, one of the things that really struck me about it is that when you're delivering a complex intervention, sometimes you can make assumptions about what makes the difference. And then that can turn out not to be the central factor that does. You know, it, it's an interesting thing that you can have assumptions about sort of what's the special ingredient in the secret sauce that makes all the difference. But in fact, those are just assumptions until they're tested. And I really appreciated the fact that you were, along with other researchers, exploring that question about what is it that makes the difference in the MDT response. And I'm just wondering, 
you know, you, you had this experience of looking through the literature, crafting this study, and at the same time, observing the team that was sitting, you know, right down the hallway from you. And what hypothesis did you really have or hypotheses going into that? And how did your own experience with the team that you were working with daily, how did it shape that? I'm by my nature a bit of a cynic. And I think some of the special source is less, um, and maybe this is part of the intervention that's less studied as well, is, is some of the cultural aspects and, and the exchange mm-hmm. and the, um, the learning that happens at a really deep level between these different disciplines that are often coming at things with different knowledge and different experiences and, and different values. And, you know, whether whether informally they can get together and resolve those things and, you know, make good decisions in the, in the context of the case mutually, or whether you need a protocol or a set of procedures that helps to, um, I guess, mediate those different mandates and responsibilities. I think that's really the special source. And I think everything else is sort of like layered on top. But yeah, they're absolutely, you know, really complex interventions that have a lot a lot going into them. So I think maybe the, the culture piece is maybe something we miss all the time. Like we're really sort of focused on, you know, intervention bits we can see, like implementing, you know, interviewing protocols or co-locating people and, and that sort of stuff. Well, and related to that, I know that you have a current research interest in multidisciplinary team deliberations. And can you talk a little bit about what interested you in that and sort of what you're hoping to explore? The work on the Child Advocacy Centre here was really sort of built around a postdoc. And, and so that finished, I think, um, as of 2018. From then, I've really sort of like funneled down into a few different content areas that are still, you know, definitely within the realm of multi-agency responses. But yeah, one of them and, and one that I'm really interested in and one that I think has really broad applications to lots of different types of interventions is, is thinking about MDT deliberation. So obviously MDTs, lots of them are very different. Some of them are to sort of arrive at a group decision, some are not, some are sort of, you know, more information sharing and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and I've, I've sat in lots of them, like I've, I've sat in some that really have those arguments and, you know, bang the table and, you know, I've seen <laughs> this before, you know, it's really important that we intervene and, you know, that, that sort of stuff. But I've also been in ones where, they just sort of are exchanging information and, and, you know, someone's sort of reading off a sheet and it's being added to a PDF. And I'm, I'm thinking, gee, this, this really could have been an email or mm-hmm. you know, probably a technological solution that could have achieved the same thing. It sort of has got me thinking about what happens in these MDTs and whether they arrive at a different decision than they would otherwise. So it... It is a bit of a sort of, you know, confected scenario. It, you know, it's a bit of an experimental situation, but we're developing a project to look at MDT deliberation in the sense of are people changing their minds from the point of initially coming in through the deliberation process and, and at the end. So the idea would be we would um, test people's assessment of risk and recommended actions on a number of vignettes We'd have them as a group deliberate in an unstructured way. So it's sort of up to them and, you know, ideally working within their existing group deliberation structure, have them arrive at a group decision and then at the end see whether anything's changed. And now from that, you learn a few interesting things. On one hand, you will learn whose assessment of risk counts more, who's got the sort of juice in the situation. So who, who's... 
um, assessment of things is, is most powerful in forming the group consensus. You get a sense of whether people are actually changing their minds. So are people sort of, you know, because they have to work in these teams day in, day out, are they not dying on particular molehills? Are they sort of agreeing to group assessments but have a different personal opinion? And I think this is, this is sort of the starting point and where I'd like to be is, is starting to unpack and look at the dynamics of some of these MDTs. So I'm wondering, James, you know, thinking about these deliberations and what you're trying to understand about them, which sort of ties back to your interest in culture as well, because, you know, you're trying to explore how much sort of interpersonal differences or persuasion or lots of other variables affect the decision-making of teams. Do you have a thesis? Do you have a sort of theory about this is sort of what I'm expecting to see? I'm open-minded at this stage. And I mean, there, there has been some forerunners of this work. And so we have, a, we have a rough idea. I guess there's been some qualitative stuff looking at, um, you know, particularly in the UK where they have these safeguarding boards. They have a lot of local level interagency collaboration happening. And I guess the observation there has been that there is often a tendency to not challenge each other and not raise difficult questions within teams. And so we think that we'll observe a bit of that, but I also think it'll be conditional on different types of cases. And I think that's where it gets really interesting is the types of cases that really sort of trigger different disciplines, risk antennae. They, they sort of like, we'll, we'll see things and be like, well, we need to elevate this as this higher risk. And that's sort of, I think, where we're really interested in, in understanding what is the nature of these cases? What's the nature of the deliberation in these differences that's going on? This is primarily a quantitative project in looking at the, the differences, but the other thing we're really interested in is the deliberation. So we'll be recording those and, um, yeah, I guess analysing the sort of discourse and, you know, discussions and persuasion that's happening in cases where there's big attitude change compared to ones where there's little attitude change. So I think that that'll be really interesting. But I guess the other challenge for that, um, Teresa, is we could probably only, only going to be looking at three or four teams. And mm. so I think with that, we won't be able to quite get into the culture of the teams quite as much because we won't have the, the level of variation that, say, you know, someone doing this in the US and looking at child advocacy centres could get where you could look at the wide variety of, um, of teams that are out there and, you know, sort of develop a bit of a measure of, of the culture within the teams and who's dominant and, and who's sort of driving decision-making within those teams. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking about some case review that I observed in Tennessee where as a part of their, they call them SIPIT, but as a part of their SIPIT meetings, which are, I believe by statute, led by the prosecutor, but the team itself has to come to a consensus about the next step, and there has to be an actual vote about it. And what, what was interesting about that is in those that I observed, they, there was much more robust debate than in case reviews, which are far more common, which there would never be a vote. Do you know what I mean? It's just people yeah. talk around the table and some sort of consensus sort of emerges and people may or may not ultimately agree with that. But I thought that that was interesting, that the fact that they had to vote in front of their peers seemed mm. to, to make a difference to the amount of debate. Now, of course, 
you know, that's an in of what, <laughs> you know, the small mm-hmm. handful of those that I observed. But I just remember being very struck by that. Even years mm-hmm. ago when I observed them, I was like, that is fascinating how much that changed the dynamic. It's almost like I would want before having them scoring these, uh, you know, sort of how they get along in, in their deliberations on agreeableness as a personality trait. I think more agreeable people are going to go along just generally, you know, and so how does that impact what happens in MDT deliberations when you have lots of people in the room who are prone to be highly agreeable? You know, what does that mean for the level of debate and discourse that actually occurs? Wow, I think I need a social psychologist in my team. (laughs) (laughs) You might, you might. Yeah, that's, yeah, really interesting. And, and, um, yeah, I think there's there's so many things that come into play, you know, the relative power, you know, who owns yes. the intention, the agreeableness, yep. also some of the gender dynamics as mm. well. Like you know, some mm. of my observations of sitting in a child advocacy centre is the, you know, really gendered nature of some of the, the different job roles and, and how those dynamics sort of play out. Yeah, it's it's all really interesting stuff and uh, and I think really ripe for further exploration. And, and, and look, I know some of this work has been done in, I guess, multidisciplinary medical teams. But that's quite different when when everyone starts from the premise of being a medical subdiscipline or a medical specialist. And maybe at the other end, you might have a social worker or something like that. But having disciplines is so different and with such different values and mandates as police, prosecutors, you know, child family advocates, that sort of thing. I think it just introduces a whole new level of, um, of complexity about how people interact and how they ultimately, I guess, arrive at a decision they can all live with because, you know, that's part of what, what this is all about is, um, one, you're hoping that they arrive at, at a better decision than, than you would get individually, but the other thing is all these people have to sort of like live and, and you know, continue day, day by day on these decisions and if there's something that, is bothering them and is is challenging their you know ability to continue to work in that team like that's that's a real issue i do think that um healthy teams are ones who normalize and have normal ways of coping with conflict you know and so there's not this sense of we've got to go along to get along on everything i think where that exists It's not just that case review and that type of team deliberation is not as good as it could be, but I think you just see that kids are sort of inevitably getting short shrift because people do not want to have the more difficult conversations that need to be had. And so, you know, I'm very interested not only in your research around MDT deliberations, but I'm just interested in this idea about how teams cope with conflict and how that ties to the quality of the decisions that they make. So I I just feel like, you know, you may be relatively early in your career, but there's a uh, (laughs) an unlimited number of subjects that you can research over the next 40 years or whatever. So hopefully 40 years, Uh, that'd be a substantial (laughs) career. Look, I guess the other the other area I wanted to sort of bring in with, that I've been been pursuing is is really about I guess the take up of therapeutic services from mm. the point of forensic mm. interviews. 
And look, that's, you know, part and parcel of the Child Advocacy Centre model is, you know, having the child and family advocate that's sort of addressing some of those barriers and you know, maybe doing a bit of psychoeducation and you know, education on trauma to try and facilitate those referrals. I guess what I've been really interested in is the contribution of that both a successful engagement and a successful completion. And again, you know, these sort of you know, prerequisites to benefiting from therapy. But my observation is sometimes within the system here, things are really sort of a bit based on more of a consumer model. So they're sort of based on the premise that, oh, you know, if they want a service, they will present to the service provider and they will, you know, tell us what they need and, and that sort of stuff. And I just think that that's not the population we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We're talking about people that have often a lot of challenges. And I, I just really like the, the idea of the child advocate that's working to address, you know, sometimes these might be really minor barriers. So, you know, sometimes they're more substantive and complex, but often these are just being intimidated and not wanting to, kind of, you know, go to a service and, and just someone coming with them makes all the difference. And potentially is that sort of sliding doors moment between, you know, someone actually engaging and completing a, a course of therapy and making that step towards recovery versus, yeah, I guess the, you know, during the ranks of people with untreated trauma out in the community that come and manifest themselves in various ways, you know, later in life. You raise a good point. And I think it's naive to think that people who are sometimes at the point of most crisis they'll experience in their life are a sort of normal type of consumer. You know, they can weigh all the pros and they can weigh all the cons of doing something very, very calmly and sort of decide what they're going to take up in that way. And it's, you know, we forget when there's a child sexual abuse allegation in a family, especially it's like a bomb going off in that family. And so I think that when you think about just how disruptive that is, you know, we can't expect that caregivers are going to make the same decisions they necessarily would even six weeks later, four weeks later. I think that one of the things that interested NCA in this, because we've been doing a fair amount of work more recently around family engagement, is we a few years ago, included in our census, which is a survey we do of all children's advocacy centers about their programs um, every couple of years, we asked some questions about what CACs perceived as the greatest barriers for kids and families taking up services, particularly mental health services. And it was very interesting. You know, people listed all the things you would expect, transportation and childcare and waiting list and all of these things. And they ranked those types of very practical barriers very high. Then when you look at our outcome measurement survey, where we're asking caregivers directly about those things, those practical barriers actually rated much lower than what parents said, which basically was, I didn't think my child needed it. That was the number one barrier was this perceptual barrier. So sort of perceptual and attitudinal barriers. This isn't about trying to blame parents for that or say, well, I can't believe you, you know, don't understand why they need this. Quite to the contrary, it really pointed us in a much more effective way to say, well, if the problem is that a parent doesn't believe their child needs therapy and we can see from their trauma symptoms that they do, then there are two things here. One, we need to make sure that we're doing some psychoeducation about the benefits of that. Two, we need to train family advocates in motivational interviewing and other techniques 
so that they really can have these conversations in a way to unpack what the concerns or perceptions are. And three, you have to look at the issues of untreated trauma in the parents because, or a bad experience that they had had with a therapist, because that was driving some of that perception about they don't need it, or it doesn't really help. And so I think that this is an area in which children's advocacy centers have a lot of work to do, you know, ahead of us, uh, collectively together as a movement, because we know that when you're doing all of those things, and you're addressing these you know, very real concerns that parents might have or perceptual barriers, it makes all the difference in seeing kids really see this uptake of services. And it was a real shift. I mean, here in the U.S., moving from here's your pamphlet or brochure, here's a number to call to, we're going to really sit down and talk with you. We're going to help make the appointment. We're going to follow up with you about your concerns to make sure you actually get there. If you fail to show, we're not just going to say too bad, so sad. We're going to follow up with you again to say, okay, was there an issue? How can we help you? Those kinds of things and talk to you about it in a different way. That's just a very uh, much more extensive, I would say, family advocacy model. But what we're seeing is that it's really having substantial effects and it's making family advocates feel more successful about their work. And like they're not just in an endless loop of trying to help, but never really feeling that they get to an outcome. So I think you're really on to something and I'll just be fascinated to see, you know, what research emerges. Yeah, look, I think monitoring who's actually getting to services is really important. But that was really interesting, you know, I guess the the discrepancy between what providers were reporting were the barriers as opposed to what families were. But I think some of these things are like really idiosyncratic to the, the local context. Like it sort of depends on, I guess, the, the thickness of the service environments, the complexity of the service environment. There's, there's a lot of things going on. And I think one thing, you know, obviously I'm a data person, so I, I want to I know this stuff. On the one hand, I think as well, there's a piece about what is the contribution of that advocate to, you know, I guess not to be blithe, but the sort of conversion to actually completing therapy and potentially benefiting from it. I think that's a case that we've had a lot of a challenge making here, which is convincing government departments that the advocate role is something worth funding. So I think on the one hand, there's, there's a piece about demonstrating the value of that. I guess the other piece of it, and um, pre-pandemic, I don't know, very kind to, to host me, I was really impressed with um, some of the work they were doing around sort of monitoring who, who is getting and who isn't getting to services, which they monitored for a really long period of time and then used that to generate solutions to those problems. And so in that case, it was things like, you know, building motivational interviewing and professionalisation of the advocates, but it was also sort of generating a, a centralised wait list. Um, you know, they, they had this problem of long wait lists and high dropout. And the solution to it was really, uh, instead of people being on wait lists all around town, being on a centralised one, but still being able to go out and and try out different services and see whether they, I guess, develop that therapeutic alliance with anyone in particular. Um, I I just found that really, really impressive and really long-term thinking in terms of how to, um, I guess, how to make the most of of data and, and build that into not just the child advocacy centre, but into the local service system because they were really talking about a network of of therapeutic providers across Chicago. So I I just found that really impressive in terms of data use. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think the pathway program overall is just so interesting. And, you know, 
Um, Char has been generous enough to present about it as has Wendy more than once. And I just think it's an interesting thing to try to continue to explore all the ways we can reduce these barriers. I do think, you know, in terms of your comment about your government's reluctance to maybe see the value of or fund as much as you'd like child or family advocates. And look, to be be fair, they've been getting it for free. So I get it. I get (laughs) it. They're getting it for free. So the next phase is convincing them to pay for it. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. I just, I think though that part of this is that there's just not as much research about that role as other things. You know, we found in when we, every five years, we commission an annotated bibliography around our standards, including all these various services. And if you look at that and and just thumb through the number of pages on recent research around forensic interviewing, for example, or the medical response or mental health, I mean, it's voluminous. But when you when you get to victim advocacy, it's thin because there's really not that much out there. And I think that that's a discipline that has been professionalizing and is still doing that in terms of, you know, setting up its sort of practice standards and testing those and seeing how that works. So I think it's, you know, here in the U.S. too, it's, it's an important role, but one in which Often, I think family advocates themselves feel that they're having to argue and debate about the importance of their role because it just doesn't have the same level of, you know, evidence base as some other things. And so I'm hopeful that researchers will begin to take more of an interest in that role and not just sort of the flashier, you know, sorts of things that have gotten a lot of attention in the U.S. anyway over the last 35 years. Mm, Yeah. And I don't want to pretend that, you know, Western Australia, where I am and, and where I was evaluating, has the only multi-agency response in, in the in the country. Like, really, there are sort of other things that, that do look like that and do have that advocacy role built in. It might be called something else or it might sort of sit in another way, but there's really quite developed multi-agency responses in Victoria and, and even in New South Wales, which um, is much more of a government-led system, you know, with departments of health much more involved. There are sort of things floating around that do have that role built in. So it's not so outlandish that um, that governments would consider paying for or, or supporting a child and family advocate linked to their forensic response. I think it's for free as part of the trial and part of the sort of sweetener to, to do a child advocacy centre res- approach. Um, they've just gotten used to it. <laughs> so, uh, yes. yeah, I think that the next phase is really about yeah, demonstrating some of the, um, you know, because it's government, so it has to be economic benefits. So, yes. um, yeah, pitching, pitching it that way. But, but I think also there is a more emotive piece and maybe a more rights-based piece about, hey, you know, equitable access to these, you know, really important services. It's what you would want for your children as well as, you know, the economic argument about, you know, untreated trauma in the community and the long-term impacts of that. I think probably the two-pronged approach is, um, is the way to go. When you talk to your colleagues around the world, you know, here in the U.S. and elsewhere about developments in this model and also research interests that are worth exploring, what do you see as research gaps that exist that you think, whether it's you or anyone else, you're like, somebody needs to research that? We've covered some of them. Like, I think the particularly the child and family advocate and the contribution to both 
I guess, the, the child-centeredness of the experience. So the, the degree to which it's a less distressing experience for the child and, and their family because of the advocate, but also, yeah, some of the sort of like therapeutic outcomes in terms of, all right, are you sort of addressing some of these, you know, immediate barriers or challenges that the family's having through your response that then facilitates them going into those services? I think that's that's something really interesting. And, yeah, I, I have been looking for a good sort of site in Australia to be able to compare between sort of the more of the, you know, here's a sheet of services compared to someone that's getting a um, an advocate. It, yeah, it, it is difficult because, you know, there tends to be state-based responses here. So things tend to be quite uniform across the state, but there are sort of pilots happening here and there. And if you can get in at the right time, you can get some data that'll tell you something interesting. I think as well, yeah, we talked about the culture piece and, and you know, how some of those teams operate and function, which I think is really interesting. The other bit of it, and I think probably where I think some of the big gaps are is in... I guess the, the types of services that are being connected to from the forensic response. So say you've got a child advocacy centre, they might have an in-house service, they might refer out to various services that are in the local area. I think while there's a lot of really good research and, and evidence about, you know, best practice treatments for trauma and even, you know, some really good research on complex trauma, I think the next question is, is about some of the standards that you want to see and the types of services that are being referred from child advocacy centres, bearing in mind that we're primarily, I guess, you know, it might vary place to place, but my experience has been we're primarily talking about very complex cases with lots of things going on. Is it appropriate to then refer to services that are primarily based on treating, I guess, basic trauma and not systems approach? So I guess for me, some of the questions is it is about what are the appropriate services that should be connected to a child advocacy centre? What, what things can we get behind as being evidence-based? Well, and I think it's interesting that you say that because I do think that while there are lots of treatments and for that matter, services that exist, once you really start drilling down into the evidence base, you know, it sort of narrows the field considerably. And I think that for us, we, we started getting this question some years back where people would be like, okay, so what do you recommend as the evidence-based mental health treatment that we should offer? And of course, there's not just one, right? There's some, but actually the number of them that have solid evidence for the particular, not evidence for substance abuse treatment, not evidence for some other type of of something someone might need, but specifically around trauma that relates to abuse, actually there's a handful, you know, it's not a large number. And so I think we kind of set out to start some years ago, just sharing that information. It's like, because I think what CEC directors here felt was it was like sifting a needle in a haystack. You know, they would go on to our government's website and start looking at all the evidence-based interventions, but many of those didn't apply to their population. So it just became overwhelming. It's like, how do I even begin to pick one of these? And so I think that one of the things that we can do and that research can do is help answer that question about, you know, there's not an unlimited amount of money to train clinicians. 
And there's not an unlimited amount of money that children's advocacy centers have in terms of brokering services. So that being the case, what are those that are most promising and most likely to deliver the outcomes that we want to see for the population that we're typically serving? I think that that's really important. And I'm I'm delighted to hear you're looking into that and you hope others do. Yeah, and, and, yeah and it's important. I do have to be critical of research in some respects in that often the evidence base for things are based on really idealised samples. So the ones that don't necessarily apply very well to children's advocacy centres. So like when you're, when you're doing a you know, randomised control trial and you're screening for ongoing domestic violence and you know, substance abuse and, and those sorts of things, the group you're testing with look less and less like the actual clinical sample. And I think that's, mm. um, it, it gets very challenging about and then applying it to different contexts. And, and I guess the other thing to say, and, and maybe it goes to your point, Teresa, is that we're more thinking now in terms of, in the context of complex trauma with lots of things going on, is more of a matrix type approach, which is mm. to say, matching different symptomatology to different interventions and thinking about how you sort of combine them in that sort of formulation stage. So instead of dogmatically sort of applying a particular model, um, I mean, you might have a, a primary model as sort of a base, but you would have a sort of, you know, assessment and diagnosis stage where you'd identify some of the key issues or, or key things to address and then you'd be going, ideally going through a sort of matrix to match them to particular therapeutic approaches that would address that. And I guess in the formulation stage, you know, ideally within a, you know, a therapeutic team, you'd be making some decisions about how to structure that and how those things could work in a complementary way. And I think that's really the only, only way to go with complex trauma at the moment. It's just very, very difficult to apply the evidence base to the complexity of the lives of um, some of the children and families that show up at child advocacy centers. Well, I think one of the benefits of the fact that we have so many children's advocacy centers here in the U.S., and so many of them over the years, especially some of the larger ones, have paired with research institutions, is that now there's more published research that was developed in the context of a CAC. And I think that you know, for me, that's critical that children's advocacy centers see themselves as partnered with researchers. So you don't have this sort of disconnect that you're describing, whereas, you know, like, like, okay, well, this was tested in an academic center with kids who had virtually no trauma at all. And now we're trying to implement it somewhere else. We're, we're seeing more published research where the the entirety of the research study was conducted within the context of the CAC pool. So I hope that that, you know, continues to grow and continues to grow worldwide, because I think that that's a critical point you're making is that there's this real life effect, you know, too. Yeah. Yeah. And and look, I've seen that myself, you know, undertaking literature reviews that it's less now studies of do child advocacy centers work and it's more, we're doing this new intervention and it just so happens to be in a child advocacy centre. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot more of that. I think that sort of speaks to, I guess, the, the next stage of things, which is the sort of tinkering and improving and thinking about how things work within that context, because that is the predominant context in the, in the United States now. Yeah, which is uh, yeah, re- really interesting. It sets some challenges for research. And I know Wendy, <laughs> Wendy Walsh and I have sort of said, you know, wow, it's sort of at a point where you couldn't do 
a comparative study in the US anymore because everyone, almost everyone has some form of multi-agency response. You, you couldn't do, you know, the multi-site. What's your control, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the, yeah, the uh, horse is bolted on that one. Well, you know, we'll have to use, look at our uh, colleagues around the world who may be differently positioned as, you know, um, sort of looking at that ground again, which I think is always helpful. You know, we mm. we had one experience with it, but I think other countries may have another and it'll be interesting to see that. I think you're right, though. It does mean that the research questions that are really to be pursued here may be um, slightly different now than they would have been, you know, back when the multi-site evaluation um, was done. But that's a, that was such a seminal piece of research, you know. I think had that work not been done at the time it was done, as you point out, it would be impossible to do. So I'm just wondering, you know, we've talked about research directions, we've talked about the things that you're working on and hope to work on. You know, what makes you feel hopeful about the future of these programs in your own context in Perth and the rest of Australia? I realize I'm asking a cynic. Look, I think about well, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, look, I I am by nature a bit of a cynic, but I think in the course of my research career, I've I've sort of endeavored to go from being an outsider and and part of being in a university is being an outsider, you know, mm. you're supposed to be an independent voice to getting a bit more access to government and, and seeing how things work. And I guess I've been impressed by the people within those agencies that, you know, previously, you know, when you're outside, it's very easy to say, oh, you know, they make dumb decisions all the time. They do dumb stuff and, you know, fun, dumb things. But once you're in and, and sort of meeting these, like, really impressive, really knowledgeable people, I, I think mm. on the one hand you're like, geez, how are they, like, making these terrible decisions when they've got such, like, incredible competence and, and clever people? But on the other hand, I'm happy that they're there. I'm happy that they're um, doing what they do and, yeah, like, and I'm motivated to do things for the benefit of children in, in their, you know, particular state. So I think that's been maybe a source of encouragement for me that there are people within uh, I, I guess the, the more powerful institute doing and really know what they're talking about and make really tough decisions at a, um, you know, the, the best with the best knowledge they can. And yeah, I think dedicating ourselves to, I guess, connecting research to that policy making and that decision making is really important. And we can't ask them to make the furthest step. We can't ask them to walk all the way to us and, you know, run randomised trials and that sort of stuff. We have to probably not halfway, probably a bit further than halfway meet them and make it easy for them to work with us and to give them the knowledge and the language that from the broader literature and all the things we've learned from other places. So I think that's, that, it's a long answer, but maybe that's the thing that, you know, encourages me. So what question have I not asked you or is there anything else you'd like to cover in the conversation, James? I'm always really excited to hear from the, um, the NCA and all the things you're up to. I think the, the survey work and, and all the, the sort of the background material you provide is always really handy to, to sort of have a glimpse of what's going on in the U.S., Oh, yeah, they do have an additional thing. Yeah, I, I've really sort of sort of adding on to what you were saying before, I've, I've sort of been making an effort to really connect to, to the Barnhurst movement in the mm, EU. Mm. I think there's, there's really interesting things going on in terms of adaption of the model. So, you know, of course, the EU, you know, really, really varied context, you know, Bulgaria as opposed to, you know, France or Germany and 
really diverse countries with different legal systems as well. And, yeah, just hearing about how they sort of adapt the model to fit their context and, and I guess maybe in some ways there's, there's some better parallels to, to the West Australian context in terms of the, I, I guess in terms of the, the split between how law enforcement works and prosecutors and things like that, there's maybe some better analogues for us to learn mm. from as well. Um, as well as the EU seem to have really good data and really good public health data on, on, and prevalence data and things like that. So I think that that's a really exciting area and, you know, I, I really want to make sure that I'm connected into that network and understanding, you know, what the developments are there, and, you know, across all the new studies that are happening over there. It's really an exciting space at the moment. You know, it is so interesting to see how flexible this model is and how it plays out effectively, but differently in every country that it's in. And so I just am always interested in research that comes from children's advocacy centers or Barnahoos model or others, you know, around the globe. So thank you so much for coming on One in 10. And we'll look forward to talking to you again after your next research is published. Not a problem. Thanks, Teresa. You're very high energy for for 8 p.m. So thanks so much for staying up. Well, James, I just really appreciate you getting up at the crack of dawn to do this, honestly. <laughs> it's not I a problem. Mean, goodness, we owe you one. So. Oh, it's not a problem. Thanks for listening to One in Ten. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And we hope you'll join our next episode exploring whether anti-poverty programs actually do reduce child maltreatment. And for more information about this episode and others, please go to our podcast website at www.1in10podcast.org.